Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled, the whole, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of God is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Well, Susan, thank you for reading that passage. Plenty of um, tricky names in there for us, not least because some of the characters have two of them. So well done, and thank you for reading that so clearly. Please keep it open. We're going to be looking at that for the next few minutes. And um, let me just pray for God's help as we come to look at this passage together. Our Lord God, we pray that today as we come to this text, your word would be our guide your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and your glory our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, uh, in the 19th century, there was a controversy around the idea of world missions. That is, the idea that Christians should take the message of Jesus to um, towns and countries where his name had never been heard before and where there were not Christians. And um, uh, an Anglican clergyman was at an event where the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, was present. And he asked him, um, Duke, what do you think about world missions? And um, Wellington said to him, well, um, what does the Bible say? Well, the answer came, Jesus did tell us to go to all nations. The Duke said, well, in that case, you are a soldier and you have been given your marching orders. So go. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is, what are our marching orders as a church? Or... um, 
this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, so perhaps we could phrase the question like this. What does the Holy Spirit want for Christchurch forward and every church? What would it mean to be doing the work of the Spirit, the will of God, for our church? What are our marching orders? And it's a question worth thinking about, um, of course, because it comes up in Acts 13, but, um, but worth thinking about because the idea of world mission and reaching out with the gospel where it has not been heard is one that remains controversial today. Uh, I think of um, uh, a senior um, church leader who, um, who rolled his eyes as he talked about evangelical churches who are constantly seeking to proselytize other people. Or an article in The Guardian a couple of years ago which leads with uh, this headline, um, a Church of England report shows that non-Christians don't like evangelism. I probably don't need to um, read you from the article, although I have to say when I read the report, I thought it was rather more encouraging than that. It said that one in five of the people you know actually would love you to tell them more about Jesus. So a bit of spin there maybe. But, um, but, but the idea, whether it's from within the church or from the world outside, there are many voices who say that mission is the one thing that the Christian church should not be about. So what are our marching orders as a church? And we're starting our, um, or coming back to our series in the book of Acts. We were looking at it um, around this time last year, and we're beginning in chapter 13. Um, now, if you know the book of Acts, you will know that it's a book all about the growth of the gospel and the growth of the church as it explodes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And um, Luke, the author, um, who also wrote Luke's gospel, is writing really to give us certainty that Jesus Christ is on the throne of heaven and that his gospel will advance to the ends of the earth. Uh, we may face opposition from um, outside, and we will. Uh, we may face di- division and distraction from within the church, and we will. But Luke says we're to be certain that Jesus is on the throne and his gospel will go out. Now, um, where we've got to in the book of Acts, we've seen the, um, the gospel going out primarily within... Um, Uh, Judea and Samaria, those two parts of what would have been the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, and primarily among Jewish people. So the, um, the church in Jerusalem faces persecution, they scatter, and as they go, they tell um, whoever will listen the good news about Jesus. And um, primarily, Jewish people are forming churches within what would have been the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. We've just got to the edge of that, And the first non-Jewish people, the first Gentiles, as the Bible calls them, have begun to become Christians. The first multicultural church has been planted in a city called Antioch. We see how multicultural it is in verse 1. Just have a look. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas... Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul... And um, we know it's a multicultural church because we've met Barnabas and Saul already. They're both leading Jewish Christians. But we're told Simeon was called Niger, which is the Latin word for black. We're also told Lucius was from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. So here we have a church that is led by five key leaders. Two Jewish guys, two black guys, and a posh guy. 
So Menaean was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was brought up literally in a palace with a silver spoon in his mouth. And so here is a multicultural church, the first ever significant Jew-Gentile multicultural church, and it's just on the edge of Judea and Samaria. If we could just put the map up very quickly. Um, There we are. So this is Google Maps today. That sort of red blob there that's advertising whatever hostel that is or hotel, um, that's um, that's modern-day Antakya in southern Turkey. That would have been called Antioch in the first century. It's just north of what would have been the first century border of Judea and Samaria. And, um, And here is the first multicultural church on the edge of the ends of the earth. Acts 13 is a key turning point Because from here, for the first time, the gospel of Jesus is going to go out beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we're going to start by seeing Paul and Barnabas go down to Cyprus, just to the west there. And so we're at a key turning point. And at this key turning point, God, the Holy Spirit, wants the church to be absolutely certain of his priority for the church. And his priority for the church, our marching orders are this. God wants the church to be deliberate about gospel mission. God wants the church to be quite deliberate and purposeful about gospel mission. Verse 2, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, um, we're not told here how the Holy Spirit talks to them, Uh, probably something that happened over a period of time rather than a single dramatic event because it's as they are fasting. You can't fast for an hour on a Sunday. Maybe it feels like it as you uh, think about your Sunday lunch, but fasting takes time, so it's probably something that happened over a period of time. There's no indication in the story that this is something that would happen every week, or even often. It's very rare in the book of Acts. And yet here, the key thing is what the Holy Spirit wants them to do. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. What is the work that the Spirit has called them to? Well, over the next two chapters, Acts 13 and 14, we'll see Saul and Barnabas go on what we often call um, Paul's first missionary journey. They're going to go out from Antioch and proclaim the good news about Jesus in places where he's not been heard before. And at the end of that journey, when they get back to Antioch, in Acts 14, verse 26, we'll meet that phrase, the work of God, once again. 14, verse 26, from Italia, they sail back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And so what is the work that the Holy Spirit is calling these two leaders to do? Well, it's to go out and to tell people the message of Jesus where he has not been heard before. Have a look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. As Sergius Paulus in verse 7 is going to bring, bring them to the palace because he wants to hear the word of God. In verse 12, he'll be amazed about the teaching about the Lord. And in the rest of chapter 13, we'll see a sermon from Paul proclaiming the message of Jesus from the Bible. Do you see, Acts 13, we're to be certain that the work that the Holy Spirit is calling them to is to proclaim the word of God 
to anyone who will listen, and especially those who've never heard it before. Uh, I remember when I was a student, there was a lot of talk about sort of word churches and Holy Spirit churches. I don't know if you've come across that sort of idea before. Some churches are word churches and other ones are spirit churches. Would you see in Acts 13, the mark of a church that is doing the work of the Holy Spirit is sending people out to proclaim the word of God. See, bizarre some of the ways that we tried to distinguish between these two kinds of church when I was a student. A Holy Spirit church is one that is about proclaiming the word of God, and especially to those who've never heard it before. Let it never be said that Christ Church Forward is a church that does not love the Holy Spirit and want to do his work. But let it never be said that we're a church that is not getting out there and telling people about Jesus from the Bible. For a church that keeps in step with the Spirit will be purposeful about doing that. And one that is not, is not. But notice too, and this is really important, that um, here in Acts 13, the new thing that we haven't seen already in the book of Acts is that the church is deliberate and purposeful about gospel mission. God the Holy Spirit wants the church to be deliberate about the mission of the gospel. Up until now, the gospel has grown and spread wonderfully because some Christians were kicked out of Jerusalem. They had to move to new places and wherever they moved, they gossiped the gospel to their friends, their neighbours, their colleagues, schoolmates, anyone they could really. And the gospel has grown in a sort of ad hoc way through the ordinary sharing of the many. But here in Acts 13, for the first time, you have the Holy Spirit saying, verse two, set apart for me these two leaders for the work of gospel mission. See, in Acts 13, it's not not only the ad hoc sharing of the many that is in view, it's the deliberate setting apart of a few to go and take the gospel where it hasn't been heard. The Lord God, the Holy Spirit, wants the church to be deliberate about taking the gospel where it has not been heard, to be purposeful about reaching out beyond our parish and our neighbourhood to towns and cities and nations where Jesus is not known and praised. And one of the things I've loved about moving to Christchurch forward just over a year and a half ago was that one of the three core values of this church is planting churches. But let me tell you, that is not just a sort of arbitrary quirk of Christchurch Fullwood, or it shouldn't be. You know, businesses are told to find their unique selling point. And it's not that the unique selling point of Fullwood Church is to plant churches. The Spirit, God, our Lord, wants churches who are purposefully seeking to take the gospel where it hasn't been heard. Now, vision statements are useful, aren't they? But the vision statement of every church should be to send out, to set apart and send out believers to take the gospel where it is not known. And of course it was costly in Antioch, wasn't it? They had five senior leaders, we're given their names, and they send out two of them. Now, I mean, I couldn't help noticing that there are actually five clergy here at Christchurch Forward, so maybe we need a sort of a hotline where you can phone up and tell us which two of us you think should move to, um, I don't know, Ulaanbaatar or something with the gospel. Um, you could come with us. Um, 
But it would have cost them, wouldn't it, to lose two-fifths of the leadership of that church to send them out. And yet the Lord God is in the business of churches that are purposefully seeking to set apart and send out. And the needs of our world are huge, are they not? If the Joshua Project estimates that there are around 7,000 unreached people groups in the world, that adds up to just about 3 billion people who have little or no access to the gospel where they live. One and a half billion people in the world don't have the Bible in their first language. Here's a thought for you, because it's not just the Middle East or or, or faraway parts of the world we're talking about. Um, I read this week that there are more occult practitioners in France than there are full-time gospel ministers. France, there's a thought for you. Here's a bit of of back-of-the-envelope maths. Um, We've just planted a church in Doncaster. I hope you know about that by now. Um, If 1% of the people in Doncaster wanted to go to a Bible-teaching church this Sunday... We need to plant another eight so that 1% of people can go. The needs of our world and of the town up the road are huge. And so the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, wants churches that are purposefully, deliberately seeking to set apart and send people out to share the gospel. And the question is, will we go? Are we that sort of church? I mean, it'll cost us. It's challenging personally because it might mean going to a hard place for the gospel. Um, It's challenging for our families because what if it's my kids who want to go and be missionaries in Syria or Afghanistan? It's challenging us for us as a church because we will always feel stretched if we constantly take keen Christians and send them off to plant churches or to serve the church overseas. But the world is in desperate need of our gospel and here are our marching orders. The Holy Spirit says, set them apart. And verse three, after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And we see the interplay there that the two of them were sent on their way, verse four, by the Holy Spirit. God wants purposeful, deliberate, gospel, mission-minded churches but then what are we to expect as we go? How should we think about the fact that mission is something controversial in the church and in the world? We'll see the two of them, verse four, going to Cyprus. And verse five, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. Um, It's a lovely thing, really. We know from earlier in the story that Barnabas is from Cyprus. So here is the sort of the international student who hears the gospel and longs to take it home. And I hope that we'll be the sort of church that will encourage and support you if you're from somewhere overseas to take the gospel home. But here they go to Cyprus, and and they go around the island speaking the gospel, but we're only told about one incident while they're there. And I take it we're told about it to set our expectations for how to think about what will happen if we're purposeful and deliberate about taking the gospel to the nations. Verse six, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them 
and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Acts 13 um, shows us something about opposition, but it shows us that God will judge those who oppose gospel mission. Let's just follow that through for a moment. Here you have, um, here you have an important Roman official. He's um, the proconsul, which means he's kind of the governor of Cyprus. He's like an MP or a cabinet minister, something like that. And here is his senior advisor, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. He's a senior religious leader, and he has the ear of this man. Now, um, this important official calls Paul and Barnabas to the, um, to the palace. You know, if you're important, you don't go. You just you click your fingers, and they come to you. And he wants to hear the word of God in verse 7. But this senior advisor, this religious leader, opposes them. And we're to be clear here that the gospel will face opposition Now, why is that? Well, here, it seems to be opposition that comes from self-interest. We're told that Bar-Jesus was, verse 6, a sorcerer and false prophet. Here is a peddler of fake religion. In the first century, um, magic or sorcery, astrology, was big business. You know, if you wanted to be successful, if you wanted to get on in your career, if you wanted to find security... In the first century, sort of controlling powerful spiritual forces was the way to do that. Get yourself a good sorcerer, and they'll make you secure and successful. And here is a man who, um, if, um, if the proconsul becomes a Christian, he'll lose his job and he'll lose all of his influence, won't he? You see, when the gospel goes out, the word of truth about the God of truth, it always pushes back lies and evil, and superstition, and fake religion. And so Luke wants us to be certain that wherever the gospel goes out, if we get deliberate and purposeful about gospel mission, we will be opposed by those who have a self-interest in fake religion and in lies about God. It may look different for us. I guess there aren't too many um, sorcerers in Fullwood. But when the gospel goes out, it will always threaten the self-interests of this world. For my friend serving in North Africa, the main opposition comes from the local witch doctor and from the mosque. I guess here in Sheffield it might look like the liberal religious institution or the secularist politician or the atheist journalist. But those who have an interest in shaping opinion and telling lies about God will always oppose the mission of the gospel. Now, I think of a church plant in London, and um, a vicar in the local area did everything he could to stop that church plant from happening, because it was too close to his church. I think of a local newspaper that would um, find any reason to try and attack the local evangelical church. The gospel will face opposition, and, and I mean, let's be honest, that is one of the things that keeps us from being wholeheartedly deliberate about setting apart and sending out, and about going, isn't it? The mixed opinion, the person who'll think badly of us. And Luke wants us to be certain that it will happen whenever the self-interests of the world are threatened by the gospel. It's a spiritual battle. We're not to be put off by that. And here's why. We're told God's opinion of those who oppose the gospel here. We're given his verdict Anyone watch The Royal Wedding? 
yesterday? And what's the royal wedding? A few, a few hands up, a few, a few, a few sort of nodding royalists who were keen to. I, I was sort of, I, I was kind of 50-50 on whether I was that bothered really, but it was on in the house, and I was just drawn in by the spectacle, you know, by the uniforms and, and trying to spot the um, cast of suits in the crowd and all of that sort of stuff. Maybe you were too. Um, in the lead up to that wedding, the um, the press has had a field day, hasn't it, with opinions of um, Meghan and of her family and everyone else. But on the day, the only person whose opinion of her really mattered was, um, was Harry, the man she was marrying. Now, in the courtroom of our universe, when the mission of the gospel is opposed, there is only one person whose opinion really matters, and that is the creator God who is calling out to people to be reconciled to him through the gospel word. And here in Acts 13, we are given in unambiguous terms what the creator God thinks of opposition to the mission of the gospel. Verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. And the man is, um, is struck blind in a way that's very reminiscent of what happened to Saul himself. We're shown clearly that God is against this man. Uh, this is how God thinks of the one who seeks to turn someone aside from faith in Jesus. Notice the... Um, Notice the contrasts there. Um, they both have two names, don't they? Bar-Jesus, Elimas, Saul, who's also called Paul. Um, I, I, just an aside on that. I didn't know whether to say this, but just an aside. There's a sort of urban legend, isn't there, that Saul's name was changed to Paul when he became a Christian. Let me just hopefully not be the first person to say to you there is no biblical evidence for that. We're told about Saul's conversion three times in the book of Acts never told anything about a change of a name. It seems more likely that it's his surname. He has a Jewish name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul. And so here, as the mission to the Gentiles begins, from now on, we're not going to be told, he's not going to be called his Jewish name. He's going to be called his Gentile name, Paul. Anyway, there you go. That's just a bit of an aside. You can take that and do what you want with it. But um, notice the contrasts between Saul or Paul and, um, and the, the contrast of Elimas. Here is, um, here is Elimas, who is not a son of God, but a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. Uh, Paul is full of the Holy Spirit in verse 9, but, but Elimas is full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Uh, Paul is showing people the right way to God, but Elimas will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. And here is what the Lord thinks of the one who seeks to turn someone from faith in Jesus. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. These words might sound incredibly harsh to us. I mean, after all, Saul actually threw people in prison and killed them. This guy is just free speech, isn't it? He's just using words. He's just telling Elamas, don't believe these guys. But Luke wants us to be certain here 
that this is what God thinks of the one who seeks to turn people from faith in Jesus. That in God's sight, it's no small thing to oppose the mission of the gospel. I think of a friend of mine who became a Christian and his parents tried to talk him out of it. Isn't it a bit extreme, a bit cultish to follow Jesus and really take things seriously? Think of an evangelistic event where um, a man went round and told everyone he could who was there, don't believe a word they're saying. And here is God's verdict. A child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. The friend who discourages you from going to church. The comedian who mocks Christ on stage. The government who declares that sharing the gospel is hate speech. All those who seek to turn others from Christ... This is the Holy Spirit's verdict. The hand of the Lord is against you. To oppose the mission of the gospel is to put yourself on a collision course with the creator God and Jesus the judge. And this judgment here is a gracious one, isn't it? He's blind just for a time. This man has the opportunity to come back to Jesus. But one day, everyone who stands against Jesus and the growth of his gospel around the world will stand before him in judgment and the hand of the Lord will be against them. And we're to be certain of that. Opposition to the mission of the gospel. Those who say that we should not take the message of Jesus out here to nearby towns and cities and nations, well, they will not have the last word. Striking, isn't it, that in verse 12, Sergius Paulus becomes a Christian. He believed in verse 12. And the shock is that he believed because he was amazed at the teaching We think it's going to be the miracle, but he's amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And we see this again and again in the book of Acts. Miracles like this one are rare in the book. And there's nothing to indicate that every time we plant a new church, you know, there'll be opponents of the gospel struck blind or something like that. But again and again in the book of Acts, we see that the word of God continued to grow and spread and prosper. It happens so much that it's almost like a chapter break in the book. You can read through and see the word of the gospel growing as people believe it. And we're, to hear, and we're to see here in no uncertain terms what the Lord God thinks of the gospel and those who oppose it. God the Holy Spirit wants our church and every church to be deliberate and purposeful about gospel mission, to be setting apart and sending out. And his hand of judgment stands against anyone who would oppose that or want to stop it from happening. So the question is, what sort of church do we want to be, Christchurch Fullwood? Do we want to be peddlers of an inoffensive, semi-skimmed Christianity that upsets no one because it goes nowhere and cries out to people to come back to Jesus? Or will we be the sort of church that's almost obsessed with planning, preparing, setting apart, sending people and plants to reach our nation and our world for the Lord Jesus Christ? Two questions for you as I close. First of all, what step do you need to take to be purposeful about gospel mission this morning? It might be that you're here and you say, I'm not convinced by Jesus yet. Well, maybe the next step for you is to look into whether he really is who the Bible claims that he is. You know, if you're a Christian here today, what is the next step that you need to take 
And maybe you need to find the church plant to join. I know they'd love to have you in Doncaster. Maybe you say there are good reasons not to go there right now. Well, what do you need to do now so that in three years or five years, you are ready to go for the sake of the gospel and we can set apart and send you? Maybe it's taking a prayer letter for one of the mission partners that we support here and committing to pray for that person, to write to them and encourage them. Maybe you need to look at the next step of your career and ask whether you could do it in Doncaster or Rotherham or um, Ulaanbaatar and take the gospel with you as you go. But what's the next step for you? Okay, but question number two. Who do you know who should go? See, this is not just a passage about going, is it? It's a passage about setting apart and sending out. We do like to leave it to the individual conscience, don't we? But let me ask you this, who do you know? Can you think of someone in our church family who would be brilliant to go on a church plant or to take the gospel overseas and across cultures? Maybe this week find a time to just encourage them, just tell them you would be brilliant at doing this. You, know, you don't have to twist their arm or buy their air tickets or anything like that. But who can you think of to encourage this week? Because the Lord, the Holy Spirit, our God... Well, he wants a church that is purposeful and deliberate about the mission of the gospel, and he will not tolerate opposition to it. Amen.